Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Owen Jones, who uh, is, uh, I'd say, a wee bit of an expert on UK politics. Indeed. He's a Guardian columnist and host of the Owen Jones show on YouTube and um, has really been helping me understand what exactly is going on there. Uh, as we're filming this today, Liz Truss, the prime minister, has resigned after just six weeks. Seven minutes. She's been prime right. minister for seven minutes. <laughs> there was literally <laughs> someone wrote a column that was like, I had a lettuce will last longer than Liz Truss. And it did. And it did. Yeah. They got a head of lettuce, like put a wig on it, and the lettuce is still around. And I, Liz Truss is not. I'd love to know the specifics. Like, did she have to move all of her shit into what is it, 10 Downing Street? Is that yeah. It? And, and then, now like, it's like, it, like, she didn't even get all the boxes unpacked, and it's yeah. like, oh, yeah. Like, how exactly does that work? Yes. Oh, yeah. So bad. She, so she instituted this just like eye watering, like right wing. Um, market ideological agenda. Cut taxes for the rich. Yeah, as, you know. even the part that really was like the icing on the cake for me, the big thing was the cut taxes for the rich and to stop any sort of corporate tax raise going in, which was supposed to go into effect. The icing on the cake for me was that she actually lifted the cap on banker bonuses. Like that shows you how just totally like Robert Baron markets, Thatcher, Reagan, yay stuff she was she was going with. And- <laughs> Did not work out well. Total robber baron shit. And then it's like, gee, I wonder why I have a fucking 10% approval rating. Literally. Yeah. Well, maybe because of that. Right. <laughs> As regular people are struggling, you're like, what if bankers got bigger bonuses? So something else that um, Owen has done that I've really enjoyed is he just went to the like this conservative party like conference or meetup or whatever, and he would just interview the MPs that he could get a hold of that were willing to talk to him mm -hmm. and just ask them really basic questions. And then they would totally reveal how like hollow and empty or bigoted oh or God. terrible, like, or like classist. One of them was like, you know, didn't just refuse to believe that there was anyone food insecure in the oh country. I mean, it was just like totally revealing just from him cornering them and asking them. They, there was some theory that he had been like, you know, sort of like, targeting them or this was all a setup or whatever. No, it was just literally the people that he could grab and that were willing to talk to him. And they just, you know, by the way, I would love to do that. I would moments. love to go to like a Trump rally and talk to the people or get into a room with Republican politicians and talk. I would love that. That would be amazing. Yeah. Because, yeah, you find the simplest fucking questions you ask. It'd be like. Yeah. Well, we have a good example of that with Jordan Peterson, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Jordan Peterson did a podcast with I think it's like a Muslim scholar in the UK. He posted this on his uh, his YouTube channel. And this part that we're about to show you right here has gone viral. And it's gone viral for obvious reasons. You'll see why. Let's take a look and then we'll break it down. The question, did that happen, begs the question, what do you mean by happen? Because when you are dealing with fundamental realities and yes. you pose a question, yes. you have to understand that mm -hmm. the reality of the concepts of your question when you're digging that deep, are just as questionable about as what you're questioning. You know, so people say to me, what do you, do you believe in God? And I think, okay, there's a couple of mysteries in that question. What do you mean do? What do you mean you? What do you mean believe? And what do you mean God? And you say as the questioner, well, we already know what all those things mean, yeah. except belief in God. And I think, no, if we're going to get down to the fundamental brass tacks. What the? Okay. <laughs> so um, now I just want to let everybody know this was at one of the questions I had written down to ask Jordan Peterson when I yeah. interviewed him was yeah, I about you telling me that. this exact 
question, this question of, uh, do you believe in God? Because this is not the first time he's given this answer. He's actually given, but he kind of, he kind of pumped his normal answer up with steroids to mm. arrive. Because usually what he says is, what do you mean by believe? What do you mean by God? Now he was like, what do you mean by you? Which what do you is, mean by do? He had, what do he you had mean an by extra, you? like, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by question mark? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I was going to ask him about this because I have a, I used to have a, it was like a ninth grade or 10th grade English teacher who liked to say that clear talking is a sign of clear thinking mm. and like, you know, garbled talking yeah. is a sign of poor garbled thinking. thinking. Right, exactly. And so the way that I was going to ask him the question is as followed, because I, I would say, hey, this is how you answer the question usually, but let me get more specific. Here are the things that are on the menu as an answer. If somebody asks you the question, do you believe in God? These are the only, I'm going to give you all of the possible answers, right? Yeah, I, I'm an atheist. So in other words, I don't believe in God or I don't think there's evidence for a God. That's mm -hmm. one position. Then you have the agnostic position, which is like, I don't know. Mm. Then you have what's called the deist position, which is, I think there's a God, but it's not a God of any particular religion. It's just in general, like a God who maybe created everything and then dipped, right? That's another position. Mm -hmm. Then you have the theist position, mm -hmm. which could be, you could be a theist of any of literally over 4,000 religions. That's like, I think a particular religion is true and the God of this particular religion is true. Right. That's theist. Right. And then you have polytheist, which is like, you know, a religion that has multiple gods. So, mm -hmm. you know, forms of paganism, Hinduism, mm -hmm. Greek gods, uh, Roman gods, etc. Those are literally the only things on the menu. Like, it, so here, it, it is I'm one defining, of those things. I'm defining for you yes. what, I, when I say God, yes. I'm defining for you what I mean by that. Right. Here's your option. So which... Which of all of those options are you most? And I I could just ask, like, what are you most in alignment with? Not even, like, give me a hard answer. Like, you have to pick one and that's it. Just which one are you most in alignment with? What? Why do you think that he struggles so much and, like, dance, tap dances around this so much? That's a great question. He's clearly very sympathetic to Christianity. And he's done these debates with Sam Harris, where Sam Harris is a well-known, like, hardcore atheist. Mm -hmm. And Peterson kind of defends Christianity, but he cloaks it in... I'm not really defending it. I'm more breaking it down through through the lens of psychology, doing like a Christian analysis through the lens of psychology. And so I think I think he he is a Christian, but he knows it's not like logically and factually defensible where, you know, like because if you take that to its logical conclusion, yeah, you'd be like a literal Bible believer. You'd have like a fundamentalist interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. I think he's smart enough to know a fundamentalist interpretation is obvious bullshit. So he kind of struggles because he kind of identifies as a Christian and agrees with like the cultural implications of Christianity and believes in it as like a structure for people to live their lives. But he also knows that there, I don't, I can't make an argument for this. Right. So, you know, personally, he'd be more like agnostic or atheist. You know what Doesn't I'm saying? He also lean a lot on like, you know, sort of this idea that since these things have survived as ideas and as moral parables for so long that we should really put a lot of stock into it. Isn't that part of his whole thing, too? He's huge on that. Yeah. He's huge on that. He's also huge on he he seems to think that like most hierarchies are are either a good thing or at the very least defensible yeah. or at the very least like the least bad option to have this sort of rigid hierarchy. I mean, it reminded me of the moment you had with him where you ask him this very direct, very straightforward question that's hard to misinterpret of just, you know, what about uh, adult human beings? Should they be allowed to transition? Um, and he, he couldn't answer it. I mean, he literally couldn't answer it. He said, I don't know. 
His answer was, is, I don't know. Supposedly, said, like, that's someone a- who's really thought deeply about this. I mean, he seems almost obsessed with the issue, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is how he comes to prominence and whatever. And this is one of the most basic things you could possibly ask on it, and you're not willing to answer it. I mean, I don't really buy that he doesn't know because— I just can't imagine that he's gotten to this place, given how much, how many thoughts he has on how many things, without having an answer for himself internally. He yeah, just is uncomfortable saying because he knows that it would be unpopular. Yeah, that's the thing. I just I don't know why he doesn't either say right. Like if he actually doesn't believe, just say that. Which I don't. I don't really think he falls into that category either. Atheist, agnostic. Maybe he he actually is agnostic. If he was being honest, he would say, "I really don't know." I. Again, I'm just speculating here. I don't know because yeah. not giving a direct answer to the question. But I don't know why he can't even make the argument of like a lot of people look at religion almost in the same way you look at like your nationality. Like I, I was born in America. I'm American. OK, well, what does that entail? Eh, nothing in particular. People are Americans and they have all other sorts of beliefs and ideas mm-hmm. and conceptions of their own identity. It just kind of is It's like a default setting. I was born here, so I'm an American. By the same token, a lot of people are religious who are like, yeah, I was born Christian, so I'm Christian. Like, that's what it is. But there's nothing else that's sort of entailed in that. They just sort of, it's like a vague descriptor Mm -hmm. that's just dry. Like cultural more than like ascribing to any. I don't know why he wouldn't give that answer, right? Like, yeah, you know, um, uh, raising a Christian family or whatever. So I guess I'm culturally Christian or whatever. You know, that's one answer he could have given if he feels that way. Or just say, I, I don't know what I am. I'm agnostic, but I like the structure of of Christianity. Just there's I mean, a lot of really, ways for him to answer that that seem more honest, given everything else he's ever said yeah. about all of these issues. It's like we can sort of ascertain roughly where you fall. So why not just give a more sort of what do you mean by do? What do you mean by believe? What do you mean by God? Like, it, I mean, it's really to me like on, he doesn't want to piss off his fan base. And it's right. like, yeah, it's very calculated. It's right. Very calculated. Because, I mean, you know, he's the supposedly like leader of this sort of like traditional values notion. I'm sure a lot of the people who are uh, who are drawn to that are themselves Christian and not in this sort of amorphous like oh, I'm culturally Christian, like I'm Christian, I believe it, right. I believe the yeah. Bible, like this is my thing, right? Yeah. And so for him to say like, well, I think some of the stories are important, but I don't really buy the like man in the sky part of it, right? I, I it seems to me like he feels like that be a problem for some of the people that follow him. Yeah, that's very possible. That's very possible. Um, but that's why I wanted to ask him the question, and it sucks I didn't get to it. There's like eight questions I wanted to get to that I didn't have time to get to, but this one I really wish I got to now watching this clip. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's like, okay, let me define it further. Here's Here are your options. Which of these options are you most in alignment well, like, with? We have this thing that's called language, which means we all have like a basically shared understanding of what these words mean. Right, yeah. You know what the hell we're asking yes. you, Jordan Peterson. Yes. Like, yes. it's not a mystery. Yes. It's not some great mystery, and we've got to analyze every one of these yes, words. exactly. And then the, I guess the final point I'll make is, um, I don't know what it is about people that sometimes it's like somebody who's like the most charismatic who uses the most words to say like the least substantive mm-hmm. thing? Why is it that that's so appealing to so many people? I, and, and by the way, it's a skill too. Like I'm, I'm not saying it's a very, it's a skillful thing because there are people who, if they talk as much as he did and said nothing, right. like he did, that people are like, "Fuck this guy." So it's really like the presentation is part of the skill of it. Yeah. But like, what is it about people that makes them want to be like, "Yeah, like this, this is the guy." Even though we just said nothing and talked for a long time, this is the guy. They feel like it's a sign of deep intelligence, even though 
it's not necessarily. I mean, dude, you know? that's me bullshitting a book report I did in fucking seventh grade. That's what that like is. Filling out the. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example of someone who does this really badly, which is Kamala Harris. Oh, yeah. She tries to do the same thing of using a lot yeah. of language, using flowery language, not getting to the point, whatever. But she just doesn't have the skill to pull it off. And so it just ends up being ridiculous. Like when she got asked about why Democrats didn't codify Roe versus Wade, and she's like, I do believe that we did rightly believe that we had a belief that, I mean, it's just like total mess, right? Someone who does it a little bit more skillfully, but I still think is, you know, obviously you know how I feel about Pete Buttigieg is Mayor Pete. Yeah, he's a little better he at it. He uses yeah, that's all true. of that mm-hmm. like flow all over the place. And at the end of like a 10 minute answer, you're like, what the fuck did you even really just say? I, it's a quality that, that actually really irritates me. It's part of what I like about you, Kyle, is that like you're very direct you know you actually go in the other direction of like really condensing things and being very direct and that's i do very think sweet that's of you a, to say thank you it's true though i mean and i do think that that's a sign of a sort of um i don't think it's a sign of like not being intelligent or being intelligent but i do think it's a sign of being honest and direct which jordan when you have to take so many words and use all this language that almost like obfuscates your point or leads people away from what the original question is, it's a kind of a sign that you're manipulating your audience more than just directly telling them what you Yeah, and to be fair, people who are like me, it can get you in trouble, right? Like, if you're very direct, very to the point, but you say something that's unpopular, like, it's going to rain holy hell on you. Yeah, because there's, no, like hi- there's no yeah, hiding from There's no hiding Whereas from he's famous for like, you know, people will say, well, you said this. Well, no, I didn't technically right, 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 say yeah. that. It's like, well, if you be fucking straightforward about what you actually think, then you wouldn't have all this confusion. Yeah. But he's able to turn that into like, they're being unfair to me because you read something into my statement, which clearly I was implying, but didn't actually come out and directly say. Yeah, that's that always, and, and Sam Harris used to do that all the time too. I think he does it less now, but he used to do it all the time. Like if somebody disagrees with him, it's like, no, you you misinterpreted it. Like mm-hmm. it's this thing of like, no, it, it, there can't just be a disagreement. It's like, no, 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 you it's it's your problem. You messed up your understanding of it. You misinterpreted it and now like you're smearing me because you disagree with me. It's just very I don't know how anybody kind of uh, can look at that and be like, yeah, that's a reasonable interpretation because again, if you truly are in the in the mindset of like let me steal man my opponent, that you mm. can't do that silly game. And that game is endless. And by the way, final point, I lied before I said final point. This is actually the final point. Um, he is, he's a very big critic of postmodernism. Mm. And it's funny because one of the tenets of postmodernism is that there really is no uh, objective truth. Mm. Everything's sort of constructed like by what society. He's doing here exactly with what he's doing yeah. with the word games he's well, playing there and the, shit. Yeah. yeah. What does the so, meaning of the word do? So, yeah. Who can say? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I I would always be very skeptical of people when you ask them a direct question and it takes them like five fucking minutes totally. to build up to answering your very simple question. And be not, skeptical. Not throwing anybody people. under the bus here, but you've dealt with that a lot in your life from many quarters. We'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So now let's let's move on. Um, there's a whole bunch of Trump news that I've, I've been slacking on my channel talking about it. And I don't know if you guys have been covering it on Breaking Points, but it seems to be rolling we're, in. We're like all nuclear war and economic well, collapse you know, all the time hey, on Breaking Points. Uh, so. I would argue those things are important. So, <laughs> so it's, it's fair enough. Um, so a bunch of Trump headlines. Let me share them with you guys. Trump loses bid to dodge judge he called unbelievably unfair in New York fraud case. Okay. So he tried to make it so that, hey, we don't want this one. This one's like unfair. And apparently they were like, uh, how about no? And you're that's where you're going. 
right? So this is the case with Letitia James. Mm -hmm. Letitia James did a press conference. By the way, I loved the Trump inner circle reaction to her press conference. It was literally the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Letitia James listed like, here's like 12 different crimes. Here are the specifics of the crimes. Right. And the specifics were mind boggling. Like right. he said, like his, his, uh, one of his properties was like 30,000 square feet. And then they checked it and it was like five or 10,000 square feet. Just absurd stuff. Clear case of, of tax fraud, insurance fraud, business fraud. Like, and again, she was very specific with the claims. Right. And then like the response from Trump center circle was like fake news, witch hunt. It's like, you guys are getting sloppy and lazy. You do realize that you're like, are you going to address any of the specific claims? Well, or? They, they tried to make it like this is just partisan. It's just political. I know, but, but yeah, and it's like yeah, but you have to actually deal with like did you the individual not claims, do this? right? Did you do this? And yeah, they like just what's bullshit here? They just didn't even respond to yeah. any of the specifics of the case whatsoever. And like, of course, Letitia James is a Democrat, but remember, this is also the woman who basically took out her member of her own party, who's the reason that she was elevated into a position of power as well. I mean, she's the reason that. Cuomo is no longer governor of New York, effectively. Um, and she's also gone after some big corporate players. I think she was part of a lawsuit against Facebook. She took on Amazon on behalf of uh, Christian Smalls and other workers who were illegally fired. She don't fuck around. Also, so she, she's she got a lot of credibility here outside of just being like a Democrat and a partisan. Yeah, which but again, like, so if she lists like 12 crimes and you're going fake news, witch hunt, bullshit, are all 12 claims untrue? Right. Are, are 10 of the 12 untrue? Is it just one that's untrue? Like, you have to make an argument. Mm -hmm. She presents all this shit in a detailed manner, and they're just like, no, yeah. no. Like, okay, well, we'll find out, because again, now he's not getting the judge that he wants to get. So okay. that's one update. Okay. The next update we have is Trump prosecutors see evidence for obstruction charges. So this one I read through and is very significant. And this has to do with the um, documents case, of course, Mar-a-Lago, classified documents that Trump had, God knows why, and God knows what, apparently some related to nuclear something, like just total disaster for him. And, um, you know, they're, what they're saying here is that some of the people who are working this case say, yeah, we've, we've got enough to charge him with obstruction. Now, that doesn't mean they will charge him with obstruction. Um, that article seemed to indicate that they wanted to have something in addition to obstruction. So it's not, quote, just a process crime kind of right, a thing. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, if it was you or me or anybody else Done. that did this, it would be, they Done. wouldn't be like wringing their hands about whether obstruction is enough. But um, yeah, the fact that they are leaking to the press that they've got enough to indict him on obstruction and just haven't officially made the call. That's a big deal. Pretty significant. The details here also said that, you know, they would probably make a decision like after Christmas about what direction to go. So in. now let me ask you, was that headline related to this other one in Reuters that um, there's an aide that tells the FBI Trump ordered boxes to be moved at Mar-a-Lago and they actually have it on yes. video. So that's yeah. the same I, thing. I think so, because, yeah, what this person who apparently is now, you know, talking to the FBI said is, Trump directly told me to move boxes. To move and this boxes. was after he was already subpoenaed, after they said, hey, get yeah. back all the stuff so, you got. I mean, that's dead to right stuff. And you got it on camera? Come on. Like, how do you get out of that when it's directly coming from him saying, you know, they were here, we got to move these boxes to a different location? That's, I mean, that's open and shut right there. And, and then the other thing is, um, they now think he has even more classified and top secret stuff that he yeah. hasn't turned over. Well, I've, I think they've long suspected that, um, that they didn't get everything in the, the raid that they executed on Mar-a-Lago. 
And so, yeah, Trump is now saying like, oh, behind the scenes, like maybe I'll do like a, give them a guided tour and allow yeah. them do like a supervised search um, because, you know, I don't know. He he tried the I'm not going to cooperate at all. I'm going to totally stonewall approach that obviously has landed him in a lot of trouble. So maybe he's considering at least like pretending to sort of cooperate and see if that smooths the waters at all. So let me ask you this. In a world that made like any sense at all, mm. even the tiniest amount of sense you could think of, right? right? <laughs> this, like, he'd be beyond done. Like, it would be a, a foregone conclusion, right? Yeah. So, make a case that I'm wrong about that, because again, all my instincts and all the evidence points well, in one direction. done, what do you mean? I mean... If this was anybody else, I'm jail like, time. I'm like Jordan Peterson asking. <laughs> what do you mean done. by what do you mean by done? Yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, if if this this was anybody else, they would end up behind bars. Yeah. They would end up behind bars. And there's so again, shit. So many cases. New York, tax fraud, insurance fraud, business fraud. Granted, that's a civil case. That's not a criminal case, but he's up facing up to a $250 million fine over there. That could be just devastating to him personally, right? Yeah. Um, then you have the Georgia cases yeah. where uh, they try to do the fake elector mm -hmm. committee there, and they're saying this is a criminal investigation and it's moving forward. They want Rudy Giuliani to testify. I think they want Trump to testify. He might be a target of the investigation. We don't know yet, but he was caught on the phone saying, find me 11,000 votes, et cetera. Right. Um, then you have the, the federal government case, of course, with the classified documents and what he did with them. And You have grand juries here on January 6th and on fake elector scheme. So, so I think those are all the ones we know of. Yeah. So if just one of these works, other than the New York one, because that's civil, right? right? But if just one of these works and gets him on anything, I don't like make a case that that's not going to happen. I mean, look, I can see it just from this perspective that Merrick Garland gets cold feet. That's he, the, the only case I can see is that the DOJ like can't. Oh, it'll tear apart the country. We can't. Yeah, that's the only that they can't bring themselves to do it in there too. And we like weak and cowardly and they ultimately decide. Like, for example, if, you know, so the obstruction thing I think is really clear and they obviously think there's enough to charge him on this. And that means if they think there's enough to charge him on that, that means they also think it's like really quite open and shut and very little in terms of what Trump could say to do or do to get out of it. Um, but you know, if they feel like, oh, we've got to add something else on, well, some of the other potential charges are a little bit more complex. You know, the January 6th stuff, I think, is actually kind of hard to charge, and you've gone over that as well. I totally agree on that. The, yeah. the fake elector stuff, there might be more of a path there to, like, yes. a, a charge on, like, defrauding the government. And actually, there was an update on that this week, which, it, let me see if I can get this right. You know, that uh, John Eastman, who was one of Trump's lawyers, he's now, uh, a judge is compelling him to turn over all his emails to the January 6th committee, even though he really didn't want to. And what they're saying those emails show is that Trump directly knew that the numbers and the theories that he was going forward with were lies, that he had been informed that this is untrue. And yet they still went forward with court filings asserting that these things were mm. true, even though Trump knew they weren't. So like knowingly lying about these, you know, supposed fraud that was going on. So you know, that could be a potential avenue that could potentially be relevant to the Georgia inquiry or the fake elector scheme here as well. So, you know, I could see something like that um, in addition to like obstruction and whatever the hell else they think about the Mar-a-Lago document situation. See, now what I would hate is if Merrick Garland gets cold feet, says it'll tear apart the country if I do this, there'll be violence if I do this, so I'm not going to do this. And then 
And then the takeaway from like everybody on the right, not just the far right, is going to be like, well, it was another witch hunt, you know? And it's like, no, look at all of this shit. It's well, they're gonna, overwhelming. Hey, they're going to say it's a witch hunt no matter they what. Are, that's I mean, true. They charge that is true. In, but moderates, independents, like center right people, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like the yeah. whoever's sane. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, yeah, agreed. And they and if nothing ends up being charged, then I think they'll be more movable by that argument of like all this media freak out, 24-7 coverage, everyone melting down and there's no there there. Like the walls didn't close in as usual. Once again, they were coming after him unfairly. And by the way, this is all a distraction from your pocketbook issues yeah. and like, you know, teachers grooming your kids or and, whatever. And just to show that like I'm a, I'm a sincere actor on this front and it doesn't come from a partisan place. There, I, you know, there were people who made the argument when Mueller effectively didn't get Trump on anything involving Russia. Mm-hmm. There were people who made the argument like, oh, you just you were you were investigating the wrong part, bro. Like you had to look at this other part, but he was totally guilty. And it's like, no, don't agree. There wasn't anything directly involving Russia, which is why I wasn't able to get him on Russia. That was conclusive. But in this case, if they don't charge him, it's like y'all fucked up. Right. You have the evidence there. You know, I we've there's so much that it's like if you don't do it, that's on you because he's. Um, you know what's interesting, though, and we'll end on this point, but like I feel like Mitch McConnell, the the Republican establishment, even some of the donor class now, they really they are fed up. It's too much. It's too toxic. You know, he, they don't like his every other day going out there saying, put me back enough as the election was rigged, it was stolen, etc. Because it does genuinely undermine the institutions. And when you look at the donor class on the right, the elites on the right, they're huge defenders of the institutions in the same way that the elites on the Democratic side are defenders of the institutions. So if the entire establishment is sort of aligned on that, then you could see them maybe like almost like a wink and a nod, like, go ahead. And it was already kind of a wink and a nod when the Republicans said to the January 6th committee, like, we're not even going to tell our side of the story. We're not going to do like, you know, present counter information or a counter narrative. They just sort of let the Democrats run with the whole mm-hmm. thing. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? That was a wink and a nod of like, God, we hope you guys sort of can get rid of this problem for us because they think he's holding the party back. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I do think like um, some of the judges and potentially even Supreme Court justices that um, Trump put on the bench, some of them have already ruled against him. That's right. I so, that. yeah. um, you know, they don't necessarily feel a lot of loyalty to this guy and they're federal judges. They have lifetime tenure, so they don't have to be, you know, they don't have to worry about. And they're elite Republicans. Mm-hmm. They, and this they is are not, elite yeah. Republicans. And a lot of the DOJ people, I know like the Trump Trumpists love to pretend they're all like, you know, liberal Democrats or something, but they're not. They're also sort of like in that vein of thinking of like elite Republicans. Yeah, Romney type, yeah. Yeah, so... I don't know. I'm like wary of making any predictions at this point, but it does seem hard for me to imagine that after all of this and, you know, leaking to the press that you have enough to charge him with obstruction. How do you do that and then not go forward with anything that that will have? I mean, yes, there will be political blowback and it will be chaotic and it will be, you know, potentially explosive if you do charge him. But at this point, if you don't, that also will be politically explosive and create political problems for you as well. So there's no easy path here at this point. I hope Merrick Garland just, you know, does the right thing, ultimately. From your lips to God's ears. All right, guys, very excited to talk to Owen Jones. As I mentioned before, he has his own YouTube show, which I really like and enjoy, and you guys should check out as well. Um, Fantastic commentator on British politics. He's also a a columnist for The Guardian. Let's get right to it. Owen, great to have you. Welcome. What an honor. 
Great to see you both, two icons. Um, thank you very much. You're too kind, <laughs> way that. too kind. That's very kind of you. But uh, I am excited to get to talk to you. The timing worked out rather well. Uh, I know you must be devastated today because <laughs> your girl is out. Liz Truss oh. has officially resigned. And we'll just say, just so everybody knows, we're recording this the day of yes. that happening. Indeed, yeah, indeed. Later, um, anyway. Just like give us this sort of basics of what she did that led to such a catastrophe that she is now, what, the shortest-lived prime minister in British history? Oh, easily. Easily the shortest-lived prime minister in British history. You've got to remember, British politics is essentially a burning skip. Um, it's a basket <laughs> case, this country, increasingly. The Tories have turned the country into a basket for case, doused it in petrol, set it on fire while <laughs> laughing hysterically. This is what happened with Liz Truss. So basically, Boris Johnson, who won the election back in... 2019 on a kind of get Brexit done platform. Um, he incinerated his political career, his premiership, because he partied illicitly during the pandemic um, and then lied about it. And a cost of living crisis took hold in Britain, which he didn't provide any answers to. So his MPs turfed him out. And then there was a contest in which Conservative Party members had to choose his successor. Now, unfortunately for the country, Conservative Party members are deranged. So what they did is they <laughs> chose a candidate called Liz Truss. And Liz Truss was best known in this country, I think, for doing a really bizarre speech where she got really angry about the importing of cheese. It, just look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. She says she does this really angry bit about how much cheese Britain imports and goes, that is a disgrace. <laughs> and that's all she was known for. But then she became prime minister. Then she became prime minister. So she already had the demeanour of someone who'd just been plucked off the street to kind of run a country. That was her demeanour. But she then tried to institute a series of completely just unhinged right-wing economic policies, like the wet dream of every right-wing think tank. So slash taxes on the rich, slash tax, slash tax, slash, slash taxes on big business, um, and a budget which just gave a huge amount of money, £45 billion worth of tax cuts to overwhelmingly rich people. And what happened then? Well, the markets then went into freefall. The pound collapsed, government, run on government bonds. The pension funds nearly collapsed. The Bank of England had to do an emergency, emergency intervention. And house prices began to collapse. Mortgage payments went up. And you've got to remember, the base of the Conservatives are pensioners and homeowners. They declared war on both of them. So then in this turmoil, which is what now the country's in, the, the Tories are less popular than cholera. Uh, <laughs> Liz Truss's um, ratings are beyond catastrophic. She's nearly as unpopular in this country, according to the latest polls, as Vladimir Putin is unpopular uh, amongst the British electorate. Oh, wow. Their <laughs> ratings are nearly the same. <laughs> minus yeah, I, 70, Liz Truss. I saw... Vla Vladimir Putin, minus 74. Wow. So, wow. I, I, yeah, I saw her approval rating was under 10%. That, that's what it is? It was less than 10%? So the net is minus 70. And that was before, to be honest, a lot of other stuff happened. Uh, Vladimir Putin's on minus 74. So, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Wow. So the MP now, if there was an election tomorrow, essentially every MP, every Tory MP would lose their seat, every single one. So they've, they've panicked, got rid of her. And now there's a massive leadership race in which Boris Johnson might return. Ah. Oh, what a country to live in. <laughs> That's right. So let, let me ask you, though, because there was a part of this that was kind of confusing to me because so effectively what Liz Truss, what her you know agenda was, 
was that of like every single conservative in every single major conservative party in the world. So like when you talk about it's classic Reaganomics or Thatcheronomics, cut taxes for the rich, deregulate, you know, unleash the beast of the free market or whatever goofy stuff they say. Right. But like historically, when conservatives do implement this agenda, usually what happens is is a boom bust cycle. So you have, you know, like the economy takes off and they're like, see, we've been proven right. And then there's a bust. It, it's also accompanied by like gigantic deficits as well. But what's interesting is that, as you alluded to, the market didn't respond that way this time. The market was like, holy shit, don't do yeah. this. And I'm struggling to figure out why the market reacted perhaps more rationally than previous times that this has been implemented. So, I mean, one just facts about that, which kind of might seem truly bizarre to a lot of your viewers, is the, the major plank was a co- was was not to increase corporation tax. The corporation tax has been cut down to 19% in this country. The last chancellor, Tory chancellor, the Conservative chancellor, was going to increase it to 25%. The reason he said was, well, actually, we've cut corporation tax over the years. It hasn't worked. It hasn't increased investment. So that was a real repudiation of traditional ring ideology. But the fact they were going to cut they weren't going to increase corporation tax is what panics the market. So mm. it, that might sound odd. The market's panicked at the fact they weren't going to increase taxes on big business. I think the way of looking at it is if you look back to 2010 when the government introduced austerity, the conservative government, the cost of government borrowing was very low. And uh, the gilts, the government, these are the gilts which determine the, the level of government of government borrowing were very low. So we didn't need to do austerity. Uh, it was complete nonsense, the whole thing. It was ideologically driven. And it was the same during the pandemic. Obviously, vast amount of debt that the government could introduce massive public expenditure um, in order to stop the economy from collapsing. Again, the markets didn't rebel then. What's happened now is this country's in the grip of massive inflation. We've now are on over 10%. It's worse, it's going up. It's not like you guys where it's kind of that you can see the kind of how that will calm down. So there's an expectation of constant interest rates going up. I know that's true in America too. But the sense then is that the cost of government borrowing is going to keep going up. So when the government said we're going to do forty-five billion pounds worth of unfunded tax cuts, the markets just said, "Well, we don't trust you anymore uh, to be able to deliver that um, economically." So we're going to. Inc- so what what that meant is the cost of borrowing, they bet, would go up. The co- the interest rates would go up, um, and that's that's what caused the market revolt. And so basically, uh, this was my understanding is effectively the markets were like, we're not going to really lend you this money to do this plan that you've implemented. And there were other pieces. I think she had a piece about cost of living, you know, that she was going to try to help out there as well. But what was so stunning to me was just how quick the fallout ultimately was. Because like Kyle said, normally, you know, these right-wing economic plans come right out of a right-wing think tank. They get implemented and it takes a while for the fallout to hit. But here, this seemed to me like a perfect case in point of how bad they are ideological, ideologically, what a disaster they are, and how insanely politically unpopular the whole mess ultimately is. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, you're right, they have been forced. The other part of the plank that she would keep going on about is they, because energy bills in this country were going to go up to over £7,000 a year. Well, I was going to try and work out what that meant in dollars, but I realised we're nearly parity now. Right, uh, there you that's go. That's over seven. It's about $8,000. Um, and uh, the average income in this country is lower than in the United States. So was, we're looking at people having to pay about a quarter, no, maybe more, 
of their entire annual income and energy bills. Well, clearly society was going to collapse. So they, <sighs> they were forced to do a massive intervention, which they've now scaled back. But they refused to introduce a windfall tax on energy companies, which is what people were calling for, because they've made £130 billion of excess profits, but they won't tax them. Uh, that was the other part of the plan. But you're right. What's interesting is, you know, we've got a think tank here called the Institute of Economic Affairs, which laid the foundations for what we call Thatcherism, privatisation, deregulation, attack the unions, um, you know, basically market fundamentalism. Thatcher put those ideas into practice. Um, and when Liz Truss became prime minister, one conservative uh, commentator said, Britain is now the laboratory of the Institute of Economic Affairs, i.e. Mm. the British people are lab rats. Mm. Well, you see, it didn't, it did, but it, it, this really is in this country or should be the death knell of this market fundamentalism because they fetishize the markets. They think the markets are king. And yet it was the markets which brought them down. Now, I mean, you know, you could say that's disturbing as a precedent because this is a kind of right wing form of Keynesianism. What she was saying was, we're not going to do austerity. That's what she said. We're not going to do cuts. And we'll do these tax cuts on the rich and they'll pay for themselves. Um, and the markets didn't believe that. And you could say, well, what if you have a left-wing government then in these conditions, which try to increase public spending rather than cut taxes on the rich? Would the same thing happen? And that shows in the current context, you've got to increase taxes on the rich. Otherwise, you know, given inflation and interest rate hikes, yeah. the markets yeah. will do this. But this should be known in the same way in the 70s, you got, that was used... Um, constantly to discipline the left, the crisis of the 1970s, don't go to the bad old days of the 70s. Um, this is the end of the road or has to be the end of the road for market fundamentalism because they introduced these radical extreme ideas which have been circulating amongst right-wing think tanks for years and it's crashed the economy. It's a disaster what's happened. I really can't emphasise enough. Britain's had the longest squeeze in wages um, since the early 19th century. The worst, it's the only Greece of the industrialised countries has had a worst squeezing wages. So now we're going to have all of this on top of the pain's not even hit yet because of what the government's done. So that's that's right that's what that's where right-wing economics have have brought us. I mean it's an absolute it's a human catastrophe. Yeah, and, um, and oh, I and don't actually know how society will cope. Current. I think I saw on your show that at least some of the papers and some corners when this mini budget was first announced were actually celebrating it. Oh, beyond celebrating it. Yeah, they were. You see, like the Daily Mail, which is like the main right wing newspaper, along with the Sun, was like finally a true blue conservative budget. Blue mm -hmm. is the color of conservatives in this country, confusingly. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, they have this ridiculous idea that after 12 years of conservative government, that they haven't done proper conservative economic policies, despite the fact they did austerity to roll back the state ideologically, which caused this terrible squeeze in living standards and shredded public services, despite the fact they cut corporation tax and it didn't work, a lot of Tory MPs and newspapers and commentators got it in their heads that they haven't really done right-wing economics. And uh, this might sound odd to say, because Boris Johnson, I know, is often compared to, say, Donald Trump, but Boris Johnson, in their eyes, wasn't conservative enough. They, mm -hmm. you know, he didn't, he did do economic interventionism, like right-wing priorities, uh, but, you know, they won the election by saying we we're going to increase spending on health, on education and on the police. Um, and, you know, they were talking about levelling up to deal with regional inequality. They were increasing corporation tax. So a lot of conservatives were like, this isn't this isn't really conservatism. Mm. So their view was, finally, we've got our big moment. This is our big chance. Let's go all in and we will show the genius of right wing economics that hasn't really been able to flourish 
And that's what happened. You know, this was for them. This is our big moment to do what we always wanted to do. And and what's, what's their cope now? Like they have to have come the up with, yeah. What, what's their cope? They're going like, to say, how are they, what's, they're what's gonna, their I'll tell you, now? I'll tell you, they're going to say, no, yeah, there may have been initially when you implement the plan because of the fact it's a big change, there may be some downsides, you but in the long the run, time. in the long run, if you kept doing it, eventually things would have been better off. That's going to be the argument. Is that what they're, I mean, what are they, yeah, they what are they saying? Liz just said we went too far too fast. Right. That's, that, that's the mistake she said she, she, she put it. Yeah, I think, do you know what? They will, a lot of these right-wing commentators now will make excuses for this, but it has buried an attempt to do this for a generation because if you now get any attempt to do tax cuts or any politician talks about cutting taxes on the rich, people will just talk about this moment all the time. They'll go, oh, last time you tried that, you crashed the economy, you crashed the pound, and you made people pay hundreds of pounds extra a month on their mortgages just so rich people could have a tax cut. I don't think so. So it doesn't matter. They will have these excuses. They'll say, you know, you know, oh, it wasn't implemented in the exact right way. Their big excuse was it wasn't communicated properly. Mm. And what they did, just to show how kind of unhinged the whole thing was, is they, um, you know, they didn't produce any projections, which normally they do, a government has to do. Here's our economic plans. This is what will happen in the coming months. Revenue will be raised here. This is what it will mean for growth. They didn't do any of that. So they just shocked the market altogether. But that's what they'll say. They'll say we communicated it badly and it's too far too fast. But to be honest, it doesn't matter because the vast majority of people in this country have concluded this is where right wing economics takes you. They don't they never supported cutting tax on the rich anyway, morally. But now everyone just thinks it's economically ruinous to do that. So I love the just thinking about the difference between the UK and here is interesting to me because so in the US, our top marginal tax rate has bounced back and forth for the past however many decades, three, four decades, between about 35% to 30 and 39%. Right now it's at 37%. And what I find fascinating is that in the UK, you guys had it at 45% and then you dropped it to 40 and then it was, <laughs> it, it was mayhem. <laughs> and then over here, it's like, you know, if you made it 40, you'd have the conservatives saying like, this is a, a ridiculous tax increase warfare, on the rich. Yeah, yeah. This is communism. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's true. It's interesting the top rate of tax because Margaret Thatcher, in this country, it used to be 98% under Winston Churchill, by the way. Right. Uh, now, we should say, leader. Owen, we should just explain to everybody what that means, though, because the when people hear 98% tax rate, they think the government's literally coming in and taking 98% of your money. That's not the way a marginal tax rate works. It's over a certain amount of income. So it used to be in this country, Chris, I'm sure you know this as well, back, I think it was um, even during Eisenhower, but going you know back to FDR, you had... Um, the top marginal tax rate in the U.S. was like 91% and, and 93%, I think, was its height. And then under Kennedy, he cut it to yeah. 70%. And so what that means is I believe the line was $3 million a year and over was taxed at that yeah. that higher rate. But then also that's not even the actual number because then when you account for all the loopholes and deductions and all that stuff, which existed back then as well, mm -hmm. the effective tax was about 43%. Right. So, but yes, to your point, Owen, I just want to be make, just, uh, make sure everybody knows. We don't make our rich people pay taxes at all, yeah. basically here. But I just want everybody <laughs> to know that 98% doesn't mean the government literally exactly. takes 98% of your money because nobody would support that. Anyway, go ahead. No. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly right. And, and and actually what happens in this country in real terms, poor people spend a higher proportion of their income on tax than rich people because right. of things like indirect taxes, like value-added tax, that kind of thing, indirect taxes, which hit poorer people more. And rich people, of course, use ruses often provided to them by 
accountancy firms that work for the Treasury, help draw the tax law, then go back to their clients to tell them how to get around the laws they themselves have helped to create in the first place. But in any case, you're right. I mean, what happened in this country basically is the top rate of tax went down to 40%. Um, after the financial crash, the dying days of the Labour government, it went up to 50%. Then it was slashed to 45% under the under the Conservative um, governments of the early 2010s after the financial crash. Um, and now they were going to scrap that to go to... And so that was going to be... At the moment, we have a top rate of tax of 45% for everything above £150,000 a year. Um, so that's the top 1%. So it only applies to the top 1% of earners. That's what they were trying to get rid of altogether. And now they've had to U-turn They've had to U-turn on that. And actually, you know, the polling shows most people support much higher taxes on richer people, but we don't have a Labour Party anymore, I'm afraid, which is willing to make the case for that. Well, I, I want to get into that in a minute. But first, what is going to happen? I mean, what's going to happen next? You know, who do you think is Boris, baby? Is Boris, <laughs> Boris coming, is coming back? back. <laughs> um, give us a sense of who the sort of leading candidates are. Is there a potential they could be pressured into having a general election? What does this look like? So the problem is the Tories are a death cult. You've got to, you've really got to, I've got to emphasize this. They're more a death cult than a political party. Just to put that in context, now with the new prime minister that we're about to have, 30% of all British prime ministers will have been in power in the last six years. Oh so it's, seven, seven, it's 77 years since World War II ended, and now about 30% of those prime ministers just since 2016 and that's with no change of government. It's the same political party in power. So David Cameron, he got destroyed after he called a referendum on membership of the European Union, which he lost. That was followed by Theresa May, who called a snap general election, which got rid of her majority. Whoops. Um, and then she was fatally wounded. Boris Johnson obviously then got rid of. Liz Truss now got rid of. Um, and now the next victim's about to take on take over. And what's happened, what the what's going to happen now is they're going to do a contest for about a week. They're trying to work out how to run the contest. Are they going to allow Tory members to vote online, perhaps? But the leading contenders are uh, someone called Rishi Sunak. He's the former Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's our finance minister. Um, now, he's the problem with him is he became very divisive because he was seen, he resigned um, under Boris Johnson to try and bring Boris Johnson down, which was successful. But that's left him seen as the backstabber who took down our Boris amongst a lot of Conservative MPs and activists. So he's become very divisive. Uh, there's Boris Johnson himself, who, you know, is is a, a megalomaniac, um, who really, you know, who believes he was cruelly taken out of office. How dare they? I got you a massive majority. You turfed me out after two and a half years just because I lied through my teeth. Who doesn't lie? <laughs> um, so he wants to, he's, he's currently on holiday in the Caribbean, so he needs to find some way of getting back here, but he's planning to run. Uh, someone called Penny Morden, um, who, um, I don't even know how to describe Penny Morden. I mean, when it's, I don't want to be harsh, but like, when it's, like, most people in the country don't know who Penny Morden is. Um, I mean, it's not quite getting to the point of just, it looks like a random person off the street put in charge of the country, but it's getting there. And she was someone actually who was seen, for example, as quite good on the issue of trans rights, um, which made a lot of Tory MPs hate her. So then she launched a last leadership campaign um, by basically making terrible jokes about trans people, which didn't win her any respect, but just made her look horrible and ridiculous. But anyway, she's a likely um, contender. Those are the three main ones. There's another guy, Defence Secretary, and just because of the Ukraine thing, he's grand, you know, he's got some kudos over that, uh, Ben Wallace. Um, but I think it's likely to be 
Rishi Sunak, Penny Morden, or or it will be Boris Johnson again. I think there's, if if there was a vote of Tory members, and because now what happens is Tory MPs have to decide two candidates, who then the members get to vote on. Mm. And, and if how he many, gets how many members? To back him, how many members are we talking? Like, how big is this election ultimately? About sixty thousand people. <laughs> Very small. Seventy thousand. I mean, I don't know. Maybe more. One hundred fifty thousand. Sorry. Yeah, because I think seventy thousand vote for Liz Truss is, and it's a few. It's tens of thousands of people. Um, it's and these are the overwhelmingly. I'm not being ageist, but they're you know they're they're people over sixty five. They're very wealthy. They live in predominantly rural areas. Um, they are completely you know they're, they're rich homeowners. They're pensioners who are rich homeowners. That's mm-hmm. who they are. Who are very very right wing on the economy and on social issues. Um, but if if Boris Johnson's on the ballot, I, he'll win. He, they'll definitely vote him back in. Hmm. It, it, it's interesting to me, though. You have this like crystallization of the right wing agenda in its most pure form that just it, you know implodes spectacularly. Like the mask is ripped off of uh, of the agenda, and you know that leads me to think like, well, what the hell's going on with the Labour Party, right? Like, shouldn't this be kind of a layup for 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 Labour? Yeah. Whoops. Um, yeah, um, yeah there, therein lies the tragedy. Uh, there's more of an opportunity now to put forward an alternative economic settlement than ever. And you know what? Labour actually do have a choice, a, a very clear choice in terms of when they come to power because either what they do is they they either do austerity again, if they, so Labour takes the charge and just does a load of cuts given the crisis in the economy, that will just mean the social crises in this country will be massively inflamed. People will think to themselves, we didn't vote for the Labour Party to have more cuts and more austerity. So there'll be an explosion on the streets, the unions, and there's something called Enough is Enough, which is this big mass movement um, against the cost of the living crisis. I mean, the Labour uh, Labour government will be, be overwhelmed if they try to do that. They did that in the 70s, and it caused a massive crisis. Or they say, well, we'll increase taxes on the rich a bit and we'll keep public spend, but we'll, we won't cut back on public spending. If they do that, the markets will probably scream at them given the current context. So the only option is to increase taxes on the rich. But I don't, they're not prepared to do that as things stand. You know, I'm not, the, the, the problem we've got is Keir Starmer won the leadership election by posturing his left wing. Mm. He made a series of pledges, commitments to, like we'll nationalise energy and rail and water and we'll increase taxes on the rich. We'll abolish tu- uh, student fees for universities altogether. Um, you know that he made these promises and he's reneged on so many of them. He said we'll unite the party and then he just declared we're on the left. So the you know he's a liar. He's a, he, he's a, you know he he cheated his way to the leadership. I mean they have gone in a they went in a slightly better direction when they had their conference. They said we're going to nationalise the railways. Uh, they said, we're going to create a publicly owned energy company. We're going to create a sovereign wealth fund. We're going to increase, we're going to reverse some of the attacks on trade unions and improve workers' rights. Like they are offering something, but it's just nowhere near enough given the scale of the crisis affecting this country. And they're already talking, he spoke, Keir Starmer, to our trade unions today, who of course set up the Labour Party. That's why it's called the Labour Party. Um, and he said, well, we're going to have to take tough decisions to restore economic credibility. That sounds to me like hysterity. That sounds to me like they're preparing like to go, I'm sorry, guys, we'd love to spend some money, but, you know, the markets being what they are. So I think the danger is, um, you know, that the, the, the plot, the whole pitch of the Keir Starmer leadership is to tell the British establishment that, you know, 
you're safe with us. We'll look after you. We won't rock the boat. Nothing mm. much is going to change substantially. So you, you can trust us. And, and that means things like sounding tough on the economy, which means cuts. That's what it means in practice. Who's the heir apparent to the Corbyn throne and why haven't they been able to sort of seize power and climb the ranks of power? Oh, that's a very good question, isn't it? Um, well, part of the problem is um, Labour's not like the Democrats in lots of different ways. I mean, as I said, Labour was set up as the political wing of the trade unions. But, it's, you know, I wouldn't look at the Democrats as a political party in the British sense at all because it's a far looser... I mean, I'd regard it as just the, you know, it's a cat, it's a party of capital in lots of ways. Um, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you have these, it's propped up by these big capitalist Silicon Valley, that kind of thing. But, but it's, it's harder to control. So you can get left wing candidates selected, you know, to stand in primaries, um, and then get elected, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, in the squad. That can't happen in this country because what, what the Labour Party do is they just rig selections for members of parliament. So if a left-wing candidate puts themselves forward um, uh, to become a parliamentary candidate, the, the party just stop them. And they say, well, we're not going to put you on the short list, so we're not even going to give members the, the chance to vote for you to be your the parliamentary candidate, which is your, the equivalent of being a House of Representative. Or, I mean, we're a parliamentary system. Obviously, the prime minister comes from parliament. Is that because and Labour is, to be is behold Oh, and just to cut you off for one second here, is that because Labour is also sort of beholden to capital? I, I'm not familiar with how campaign finance works in the UK, but it, would that be the reason why, or is it more ideological? It's more ideological because, as things stand, Labour is dependent on funding from the trade unions. I mean, the unions provide Labour with millions and millions of pounds every year. So the, most funding for the Labour Party comes from the trade unions. So it's very different from the Democrats. You do, you do. I mean, under in the Corbyn period, multi-millionaires just stopped giving money to the Labour Party. So the entire budget of the Labour Party, all of it came from either members who joined and become members of a political party or from the trade unions. And, and there was no money coming from anywhere else at all. Now, what the Starmer leadership is trying to do is win over business people. Um, That's so now you've got big... Exactly. And, yeah. and actually some former Tory donors are now going to give money uh, to the Labour Party. So you can see what's going on there. The problem with our left is, is you know, it, it, the, the, they're a minority in the parliamentary party. They're very divided and they don't have a clear leader. Um, that's the problem. We don't have a towering... We don't have a Bernie Sanders. We don't have an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We've got some great people. We've got like Zara Sultan, who's a brilliant young um, um, Labour MP, um, and Nadia Whitten, they're in their 20s and they're very articulate spokespeople. We have people like Clive Lewis, who's a former soldier, who's a very good communicator, he's on the left as well. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn's been kicked out of the Parliamentary Labour Party by the leadership and they won't readmit him. Um, and he's become very marginalised in British politics. Mm. I mean, the lead Labour leadership have waged war in order to make that happen. And then, you know, we don't have any... There's John McDonnell, who I hugely admire, who's, who is Jeremy Corbyn's right-hand man, the he was, in, he was in charge of the finance, the fin economic plans. But we don't have a clear leader. And that's the tragedy, I'm afraid, of the moment. The left doesn't have a leader in parliament. The real leader of the left at the moment, in a way, has become the leader of the Transport Workers Union, a guy called Mick Lynch, who you might have heard of. Yes, I and have. And basically, well, he came to prominence, basically, for like just not taking shit off stupid TV presenters uh, <laughs> who would ask stupid, inane, uninformed questions. And he just went for them, humiliated them, became a viral sensation. And he's just ring the figurehead of enough is enough, this movement against cost of living crisis. So we've got a kind of extra parliamentary mass movement that the leadership 
of the left in parliament is so divided. It's it's a real tragedy, to be honest. And what is your analysis personally of why Corbyn lost? What my analysis about why Corbyn lost? Mm-hmm. Oh, blimey. Back to 2019. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm just curious because, you know, we have lots of <laughs> we have lots of discussion about, you know, the failure of the burning campaign and the fracturing of the left here and, you know, the loss of uh, some segment of the working class to the right and the continued sort of erosion, especially of like Latino working class people into the Republican Party. So we have all kinds of debates going on here about why and how that's happening. And I was wondering if there are any echoes there as well. Yeah, say that again. Sorry, I missed the last bit or misunderstood it. Uh, I just we have had a lot of debates here about the movement yeah. of the working class, I the didn't. realignment, and I'm wondering if there's a similar realignment that's happening there. Well, it's tricky, you know. I mean, what happened with what's happened in British society basically is it's uncomfortable for people like me who just prefer to talk about class politics. That's my political education. Mm-hmm. When what's clearly happened in British society is a generational divide has opened up, which is unprecedented. Because traditionally, uh, if your parents and your grandparents voted for a political party, you were likely to vote the same way. That's just not the case anymore. You know, in in the early 80s, young people voted for Thatcherism. They voted for the Conservatives. Um, And now the Conservatives just have no support amongst people who are young. Under 40, Conservative support already collapsed before this, including in 2019. In 2019, the working age population, Labour had a lead. But the Tories have the overwhelming support of basically homeowning pensioners who are a very large chunk of British society and who vote in very large numbers. And in 2019, we had what happened in 2019 really shows why culture wars are just toxic for the left, because the whole point of what Jamie Corbyn, if you think about the 2017 general election campaign, when they got 40 percent of the vote below the Tories, 42 percent, but a really big surge in support, which threw the Tories into crisis, the, 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 the mantra was for the many, not the few. That's class politics. The idea, we'll tax the rich to invest in public services. That was, it was a kind of, your interests aren't, the, not, aren't just different from those at the top. They're on a collision course. Mm-hmm. And what Brexit did, um, which was about, you know, Britain's relationship with the European Union, is it made people think, it's not about whether you're uh, working class or middle class or Labour or Tory, you're a Remainer, you support staying in the European Union, or you're a lever, i.e. you support leaving the European Union. As if somebody who works in a supermarket in central, in, 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 a, in a working class district of London who voted Remain has anything in common with David Cameron, who also voted Remain. As if some ex-miner in, in the North who uh, voted Leave has anything in common with the multi-millionaires who supported the Leave campaign. But that's how it made people, encourage people to think. And that was disastrous for the Labour Party because... You know, they they most of their supporters voted Remain, but in key areas of the country they needed to win, their supporters voted Leave, and they couldn't keep that coalition together. And they ended up actually, for Remainers, thought Labour was too pro-Leave, and Leavers thought it was too pro-Remain. And that really tore the electoral coalition apart. I think what's changing in this country, though, you know, when people say about generational divide, we'll talk about it. It is a class issue because overwhelmingly younger people in this country don't have capital. They're not homeowners. They're Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly privately rent. They've got very few rights. Half of them are saddled with debt if they go to university. They're in precarious employment. Their living standards have fallen. The public services they depend on have been slashed. Whilst a lot of there are still poor pensioners, there's 1.9 million poor pensioners in Britain, but they're mostly homeowners. In fact, a massive number of them just own their home outright. 
um, and um, their pensions have been protected under the Conservatives. So the problem for Labour has been, how do you win over those pensioners who are socially conservative and economically relatively secure when actually the people who support Labour are overwhelmingly younger people who are precarious and insecure, but in urban areas where Labour just piles up the votes in mm-hmm. these safe seats? Yeah, that's been the problem. There are a lot of echoes, um, it's very similar dynamics here in terms of, you know, if you look at the amount of wealth that millennials and now certainly Gen Z have been able to accumulate, millennials are behind on every single life milestone as compared to older generations, certainly on home ownership. And I really have come to see home ownership as one of the most significant divides in terms of society, in terms of politics, in terms of all of that, because, yeah, I mean, you know, the American dream is buy the house, have the family, have the white picket fence. And now if mommy and daddy aren't rich and they can't like upfront your massive down payment, you're shit out of luck. Uh, and I know that, you know, housing politics and the affordability crisis has been incredibly relevant there as well. Very much so. So home ownership amongst younger people has just collapsed in the last 20 years. It's, amongst middle income young adults, it's halved. Um, and in, and we don't have, you know, in this country, we had a tradition quite differently from America of council housing. That's public government provided housing, which after World War Two, there was a massive um, the the uh, at the time there was a Labour politician called Nye Bevan and he was the health secretary and he's in charge of housing because housing was seen as so fundamental to public health. And he he created this mass program of building this council housing. Hmm. And he said he wanted it not just for the poor. He said he wanted it to support mixed communities. He said to recreate what he called the lovely feature of the English and the Welsh village where the doctor and the grocer live next to each other. But what happened in the 1980s under Thatcherism is people were encouraged to, to buy their own council homes. Um, which so we had a massive collapse in in public provided housing, mm. and what happened is a massive chunk of that just got taken over by private landlords charging twice the rent of what would have been the case before. So you've got this generation of people who go into a private housing market with rip off rents, with no security, often terrible landlords, often very bad quality housing, where they're spending like half or more of their income on rent. That's before bills. Um, so that's become a massive issue as home ownership home ownership's collapsed. Council housing isn't an option. So you're basically at the mercy of private landlords who are ripping you off. And that has that has made such an impact on, on people's political attitudes. That's why younger people no longer support the Conservatives. You know, you always had a significant chunk of younger people who support the Tories. But now support for the Conservatives amongst people under 40 is just almost non-existent. It just doesn't exist anymore. So... Uh- I want to talk a little more about the comparison between um, Liz Truss and Margaret Thatcher, because and tell me if you agree with this theory. I was the idea kind of this, uh, you know, cynical idea of like, uh, we'll have the heir apparent to the Thatcher throne. But, you're, you know, the conservatives are kind of weaponizing identity in a sense to try to deflect legitimate criticism like, hey, that's a woman. It's a woman. Right. So we're progressive now. Right. You think that was part of the idea as to why she was picked? To a degree, yeah. I mean, she really hammed up the Thatcher um, comparison. She she would turn up. It's so embarrassing, actually. She really. I'm sorry. She's so she's so embarrassing. The whole thing, looking back, was like, 
Really? You made this person prime minister? Anyway, she kept turning... Look, Thatcher, whatever I think about Margaret Thatcher, which is not good, you know, Margaret... I grew up with Margaret Thatcher as, like, this kind of, like, evil baddie to scare me if I was naughty, you know, to, like, if I did something, Thatcher will come and get you. you know, that's that's how I grew up with um, But Margaret Thatcher was a devastatingly effective politician, devastatingly effective. Uh, she was determined, bloody-minded... Um, she had a vision of society and she was obviously extremely intelligent and very capable. There's no point, you know, you shouldn't underestimate your opponents. She led a government that destroyed the post-war consensus of strong unions, nationalisation, high taxes on the rich, state intervention in the economy, destroyed all of it with terrible consequences for British society. But she was damn good at what she did. This is, I mean, what's the expression that, in that, in, um, that famous uh, debate in the US, uh, was it ni- 1988? Well, it's, you know, I, wor- I knew Margaret Thatcher. Mm. I worked with Mar- Margaret Thatcher. Liz Truss, you are no Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I mean, she, she would turn up to debates. She would turn up to debates dressed up in the exact same costume as Margaret yeah. Thatcher. Literally. She kept going yeah. when she was foreign. Literally, she'd go as foreign secretary to Russia and she would dress up in the same attire, you know, with a big fluffy hat as Margaret Thatcher did. Uh, in the 80s. And the problem is, she is ideologically crazed right wing. I mean, she had a, you know, but she's not capable in the way Margaret Thatcher is. In her defense, the difference was Thatcher was able to tap into a zeitgeist at the time. Right. Because British society was in crisis. We had the oil shock of the 1970s, massive inflation like we have now. But there was an argument then you could go, this is the fault of collectivism. And now the, the populist appeal at the time was, we're going to let the individual flourish. You can take, you can, if you work hard and you can earn your keep. And the problem is that collided with reality. What was promised as freedom was lived as insecurity. Right. So actually what Liz Truss was trying to do was double down on something that has clearly failed and doesn't have the support of the British population. With Thatcher, it was something new at the time. She could say, this model's failed. I've got a new model. Liz Truss wasn't offering a new model. She was saying, I'm going to do the model that has clearly failed but I'm going to put I'm going to put rocket boosters on under it. So you know, and in, that's what she did. Um, but she wasn't capable. She's a terrible communicator. Margaret Thatcher was a very good communicator, um, slightly otherworldly. But she was, you know, she she could do a populist case for neoliberalism. Basically, this one, you know, you just find anyone on your street, anyone what any passerby, they're probably going to be a slightly better communicator. Than yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and- <laughs> Just, just to bolster your point here, and Crystal, if you want to jump in on this too, you can. Just to explain uh, the side effects, or perhaps the primary effects of, of Thatcherism, there were nearly 3.3 million unemployed in Britain in 1984, compared to 1.5 million when she first came to power in 1979, uh, although that figure had reverted to some 1.6 million by the end of 1990. While credited with reviving Britain's economy, Thatcher also was blamed for spurring a doubling in the relative poverty rate. Britain's childhood poverty rate in 1997 was the highest in Europe. When she resigned in 1990, 28% of the children in Great Britain were considered to be below the poverty line, a number that kept rising to reach a peak of nearly 30% during the government of Thatcher's successor, John Major. So... Yeah, I mean, it's no accident, as you were saying, like the zeitgeist at the time, very simple, like it's no, it's not an accident that she and Reagan were coming into power at the same time. Right. It's like the end of the New Deal. All right, we're going to have this, you know, right wing, quote unquote, freedom agenda. 
that has now sort of run its course, and yet we still have, like, the zombie remnants of it ruling all of us. So what is the current zeitgeist, as you see it, among the British public? Like, if you had direct democracy and they were to vote on an economic platform and plan, what do you think it would look like? It's funny you mentioned zombies because anyone who's a fan of the genre knows that zombies can still do a lot of damage. So Mm -hmm. I think that's probably a way of looking at the economic system. And just the other point I'd say that the description Carl made there, I agree with a lot of it, apart from what it said about credited, about reviving the British economy, is to lie with Thatcherism, which, you know, will will let me answer to the final point there. Because the, the, the decade that had the best economic growth in Britain was the 1960s. And that's when we have nationalization, strong trade unions, massive government intervention in the economy. Right. That was the that was the best period of growth. The 1980s, which is seen as like, you know, we revived from the 1970s and the terror, terrible economic growth in the 70s. The growth in the 80s was exactly the same as the 1970s, in which there was a massive oil price shock. The 1990s was lower growth yet. And the noughties was even lower growth. And the next decade was about the same. So we've only had weak economic growth under Thatcherism, and the growth that we've got is less equitably distributed than the higher growth we used to have, which was more evenly distributed. Correct. So the zeitgeist today, you know, if you look at the polling, look at the polling of conservative voters. Well, what's left of them? Because there's not many left. <laughs> According to the polls, they're on about 20%. Mm-hmm. Labour's on about 55 60%. Wow. Um, now, but amongst conservative voters, when they had a few more, Conservative voters, um, there's massive support for nationalisation of energy. So in British society now, about three quarters of the population support nationalisation of utilities. Wow. There's massive support for in- increasing taxes on the rich. Again, is like 70% plus. Um, I mean, you could go through a whole raft of left-wing economic measures. And it's not just the general population who support them, but people who consider themselves right-wing support nationalisation, higher tax on the rich. If you look at the unions, I think it's a really interesting point because unions haven't collapsed to the degree they have in the United States, but they're still much lower than they were. The peak was 50% of all workers were unionized in 79. It's now about a quarter. But traditionally, strikes weren't that popular. And but at the moment, the, the strikes that are taking place, the polling shows that the public support them more than they don't. Amongst the working age population, very large support for the unions going on strike. So actually what's changed because of the cost of living crisis and an economic model that's clearly failed is people have moved pretty drastically um, to the left. And the tragedy is the public are to the left of the Labour Party. That's where we're currently at. Yeah. And by the way, again, just to bolster your point there, um, Britain's Gini coefficient, which is that's how you measure uh, income and wealth inequality, skyrocketed under Thatcher. So, um, Very much so. I mean, the, the other thing about that, what Thatcherism did is Lots of traditional industries were just shredded, you know, the mm. docks, the factories, the mines, with nothing to replace them. So you didn't yeah. have lots of secure jobs yeah. that are well paid to replace them. It's the same in the Rust Belt in the United States. Yeah. But this happened very rapidly yeah. in Britain. And there, there are a lot of the places that voted to leave the European Union. They felt abandoned and betrayed. And that's why so many voted to, to leave the EU in, in, the, in the referendum campaign. Um, I was curious, Owen, to also get your view of what the uh, British public is thinking about uh, Russia's war in Ukraine and also if there are any significant divides between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party in how they would um, approach that war. Uh, U.S. and the U.K. have been very stalwart allies in terms of, you know, the U.S.'s view is basically which has been spoken out loud. We want the war to continue. We want Russia to be weakened. Ultimately, uh, there was a news report this week. They don't want to do anything at all to even nudge Ukraine. 
Ukraine to the negotiating table. Um, so what is the view, you know, from uh, from where you sit? And also, like I said, are there are there important distinctions or, or differences between how the Labor Party would approach that conflict versus the Conservative Party? Not really. I don't think there's, I mean, there's a kind of general cross-party consensus, I'd say, on the issue of Ukraine. I think what I would point out, though, is to be honest with you, given the scale of crisis in the British economy, British society, Ukraine, just for months, just hasn't been a dominant issue in British politics. There's just been too much turmoil in in, in Britain. I would say most of the British public, obviously, are very sympathetic towards Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, a, I think... Um, in terms of Russian aggression, that's I think there would be a consensus on that. I think what's what's interesting though is, you know, Ukraine often comes up in that it, it became a bit of a running joke that whenever Boris Johnson was in trouble, he would he would suddenly go on a, on a phone call with Zelensky, mm-hmm. so you get all these mm-hmm. like contrived kind of so oh oh so, you know Boris Johnson's in trouble and now he's doing a phone call with Zelensky. And Zelensky clearly, you know. They clearly had quite a good joint working relationship. I think Zelensky ended up being Boris Johnson's only remaining fan, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, and uh, what they've tried to do in the cost in the crisis in British society is to say, well, this is because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, that's you know, in terms of the crisis, that you know, I mean, obviously there is there are external shock factors. It's just it's always made them worse. But Ukraine, you know, th- this country is in too much of a mess now. It's caught in too much of too much turmoil for that war to have any significant bandwidth, which it really just hasn't for several months, if I'm honest. Wow. Yeah, and Crystal, I just looked this up because I was curious when you asked that question. Apparently, imports to the UK from Russia, it was 4% of gas used in in the UK. So 4% of their gas comes from Russia. That's it. The US actually had more than that. We just covered a story on breaking points. Did you see this, Owen, that the BBC was preparing like these secret scripts in case there are um, blackouts during the winter? Yeah, I was going to say, 4% doesn't sound like a lot, but actually, if you took that 4% out, Britain would be pretty buggered, actually. And, yeah. and, and and what they're talking about in Britain at the moment is they are talking about blackouts, uh, which we haven't had since, well, in the 1970s, when you had strike action by the miners. So it was famously a three-day week uh, introduced at the time. That just sounds great, but actually, it was a, <laughs> it was a period, obviously, of crisis in British society. Um, yeah, I mean, what... Because the, the Conservatives privatised that energy market, but what they also did is uh, they fl- they got rid of the um, the storage energy storage facilities properly in this country. So as a consequence, we you know we we could have had energy stored for these sorts of eventualities, but the privatised model we've had means that we don't. And so at the moment, of course, we're dependent on 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 gas, and we're still that four percent. As I've said, if you take four percent out, then then the energy situations in in a real real crisis, mm-hmm. you know, and you've had under Liz Truss. One of the things she did is she she suddenly declared decided she didn't she didn't want like solar panels. Suddenly decided that solar panels were bad. I mean, she's <laughs> so. I mean, the whole thing's so. That's a very Trumpian like wind farm. Yeah, yeah. She's like she was like they're an eyesore, so we're not yeah. going to have any. More I don't solar like these panels. things. Get rid and of them. Not, yeah, no, I mean, obviously wind farms they don't like. Um, and instead she said, we're going to go for oil and gas. But even if you supported that, which you shouldn't, um, oil and gas would take like 25 years when you get more oil or gas to get actually in stream to actually provide energy. So it's not even relevant. Um, so because we haven't built up a, a renewable energy supplies as well we could, we're still very susceptible to external shocks. And because a privatized model got rid of our energy storage facilities, obviously because they weren't profitable enough. 
this country could have blackouts. And it's you can see it's a British problem because in Northern Ireland, which remains part of the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom, of course, is England, Wales, Scotland and, and Northern Ireland. And they're, they're going to be immune from blackouts because they're integrated into the same energy system as the Republic of Ireland. So it really is just Britain. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, that actually was part of these uh, scripts that the Garden, Guardian got their hands on. They're like, you're good over there in Northern Ireland. The rest of y'all, pretty much fucked. <laughs> and by the way, just to correct myself real quick. Yes, it's 4% of gas, but um, apparently the UK imports 9% of oil from Russia and 27% of coal. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Owen, your sort of short-term prediction is we may well be getting Boris Johnson back, or you may well be getting Boris Johnson back. What is your longer-term uh, prediction of the the fallout from, uh, as you put it, the Liz Truster fuck? <laughs> uh, yeah. I would say that it's probably only 40% chance Boris Johnson gets back, because mm. I think enough Conservative MPs will go, we're not doing this again. Mm. So, actually, I think there's still, I, I still think it's probably Rishi Sunak or Penny Mordaunt who will take over as Prime Minister. Okay. Um, longer term, what do I think is going to happen? Well, okay, so there can't be, in, in theory, there won't be a general election now until the latest is the beginning of 2025, which just seems so ridiculous at this point because, you you know, we've got a situation now where we've, we've got, we've, we're going to be in our third prime minister in the same year with nobody having voted um, for them to be the leader of a political party in a general election. You know, sometimes you do get a prime minister removed from office and then replaced by another. But for that to happen twice is completely farcical. But the obviously, it's up to the Conservatives. The Conservatives have to decide to call a general election. Why would they do that when the polling suggests they'd get wiped out? So the problem is, as things stand, even though the British public overwhelmingly want a general election and Conservative support is derisory, they're, they're almost certainly just going to drag this out for over two years um, and because they'll just hope for something to come up. They'll hope that, you know, maybe the economy will turn around. But actually, the worst pain is still to come by a long, long way. Um, in terms of energy bills, which despite government help are still going to be absolutely extortionate. In terms of inflation, in terms of now they're going to do cuts to public services. So they're talking about the return of austerity, even though we've already had these all the meat being hacked away. So they're going to cut health further. They're going to cut education. You know, we're, we're talking about a massive, massive social crisis in this country. Millions of people, including people who might have regarded themselves as relatively secure or middle class. I say middle class in the British sense, which is we use middle class to mean more comfortable and privileged. Um, we, you use middle class the way we would normally say working class, I would, th I would say. But people who are relatively okay are going to find themselves below the waterline. What does that mean in practice? It's a very, very good question because I think this country has become, um, you know, I, you know, it's it's become a, you know, a a, a bomb waiting to go off. I think. I mean, I, I really, really think that this country's you can't underestimate how much trouble this country's in. It it, it is in the worst turmoil of any Western European nation, wow. which is striking because British exceptionalism was always. Britain is different from Europe because they're all, you know, demagogic and they're all in, always in crisis. This country is in a in is in a at the moment a massive death spiral economically wow. and socially. There's no there's no question, and I don't know. It's a, we're about to see a very interesting experiment in which what happens when you have a totally unprecedented fall and squeeze in living standards, um, um, you know, in in a time of crisis.
it, it's a very, very good question, but I think this country's ready to blow. I honestly think that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and I fear, uh, I fear stagflation. And I don't know if you have the same fear, Crystal, as well, that, you know, it, high inflation combined with um, unemployment going up. It's almost like it, at least the Fed policy in the U.S. almost seems designed to get to that end result, because if we agree that the inflation is more about the supply chain and corporate profits, then to, to adjust the interest rates might not necessarily have the huge impact on inflation that yeah. people think it will. Mm -hmm. And so if you're trying to induce a recession, but the inflation stays up. Disaster, right? Yeah. Total disaster. Um, oh, and I know you have your own live stream that you have to get to. Um, I really am grateful for your time. Thank you so much for making all of this clear for our audience and for us as well. It was a massive honor. It was quite therapeutic. So thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll treat this like therapy. <laughs> <laughs> You're all warmed up for your live stream. You're ready to go. Thanks, Owen. We'll see you soon. All right. Thank you. Lots of love, guys. See you in a bit. Thanks, Bye -bye. man. You too. All right. So that was Owen Jones giving us the down low on mm -hmm. what's going on over there. That was great. Uh, yeah. So by the way, I looked the number up. Um, Liz Truss has a 10% approval rating and 80% uh, have an unfavorable view of her. Wow. Yeah. I don't even know how that happens. I'm, I told you this before. I'm, I'm sort of jealous of that because, you know, I feel like with politicians here, it's so partisan that they can do literally anything and still 30% of the population would be like, that's my guy. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I agree with it. But it is interesting, too, because there are some aspects of our system that's more democratic and some mm -hmm. of theirs that's more democratic. Mm -hmm. So, like, for them, um, do they have proportional representation in their parliament? I'm not sure. I think they might, right? Okay. I, think, I don't know. Well, either way, so a parliamentary system, either way, is more uh, democratic in a sense because so they have a House of Lords, which is like their Senate, but it has less power. Mm -hmm. So it would be like here, if we like abolish the Senate, we would have a more representative. Well, body. like, I mean, you also have less, I guess, political gridlock. I mean, her mini budget, like the reason there was a freak out is because it didn't have to, like, get through a parliamentarian and a filibuster. Like it was that shit was happening. So, <laughs> yeah, it's um, I mean, the reason I think the story is so important is, number one, it is the most clear example of right wing economic ideology just completely failing. Um, instantly, it's like the best example we've ever seen of how just stunningly bad it is from a policy perspective, how disastrous it is, and how politically completely unpopular. She ends up being the shortest lived prime minister in UK history. It is really interesting, Incredible. though, isn't it? Because like Thatcher did the same shit. But Thatcher is, you know, viewed as like, oh, Margaret Thatcher, one of the best UK prime ministers of all time. A lot yeah. of people believe that. Obviously, I don't believe that. And I just, yeah. I, we just talked about the numbers about how poverty skyrocketed and income mm -hmm. inequality skyrocketed. And Reagan, too. Reagan gets a, a, you know. Oh, he's still got a halo. He's considered in the top, like, five best presidents of all time here. But if you actually go to the specifics, sort of like with Thatcher, you find the same thing. Poverty skyrocketed, income and wealth inequality skyrocketed, the deficit and the debt skyrocketed. Like, so it's it's totally, but it is interesting how, I guess, the time and place matters a lot. And the current economic scenario scenario matters a lot because it, this just isn't the time, given what's happening economically in the yeah. country, to do what she tried to do. Right. And yeah. neoliberalism has really run its course. Anything yeah. that was good that you could have gotten out of it has been gotten. And now the only things you get out of it are like inequality, financial collapse, <laughs> like chaos. I like his description, market fundamentalism. Yeah. That, mm -hmm. That's what it is. And that's exactly what you see here in the U.S. You have varying degrees of it between, you know, Republican presidents in the U.S. and Democratic presidents in the U.S. But generally, the religion has been 
privatize as much as humanly possible, deregulate as much as humanly possible. The Democrats are more what I call status quo managers, which is like, yeah, I'll do some tweaks around the edges, maybe a little health program over here, a little something over here that might change the nature of it. And the Republican position has always been no to the max. We deregulate and privatize. And yeah. this is the this is the logical endpoint of this ideology. And if you try to do a square peg round hole type situation where the facts on the ground don't match it, but you try to slash taxes for the top one percent. Look at what fucking happened. Even the market flipped out. It makes me wonder if you do have Republicans take complete control back of the government, president, House, Senate. I mean, they're going to do some very similar things as what Liz Truss just did um, right. in the UK. Mm-hmm. And now we're in a little bit of a different position with the world's reserve currency, you know, all these sorts of things. But Ultimately, I think the results will be similarly disastrous. You know, I mean, they're upfront about right now, if Republicans take control of the House and the Senate, they want to cause a government like debt ceiling showdown financial crisis. That's right. their mm-hmm. stated agenda. That's what they want to do. They're upfront about, hey, we want to cut Social Security and Medicare. They're, they're upfront about, hey, we want to double down on the Trump tax cuts for the rich. So they're certainly not learning anything from what happened overseas. They're still all in on this complete market fundamentalist agenda. And, you know, like I said, any good that you could have gotten out of that has been gotten. Everything from here on out is just like pain and disaster. The thing that the Republicans do, which works phenomenally well, more than I would have ever guessed that it could work, is they change the conversation to the culture war. And they have a position, they hawk it relentlessly, that's where most of the air in the room is sucked up by that Mm -hmm. conversation. And then it's an attempt to just do continuity behind the scenes when it comes to economic policy. Like, yeah, cut more taxes for the rich, deregulate more, hope people don't realize, pretend like we're, you know, we're somehow being super populist, even though we're being the opposite of populist. Right. Right. So like that's that's their plan. That's that's what. Yeah, that's what they do. You know, that doesn't work as well when you have a genuine economic calamity unfolding like I know financial crisis you know and like we may be headed back to right now and they literally have one answer it's always go back to the same thing Mm -hmm. it's cut taxes for the rich Mm -hmm. deregulate that's it yep and you know there's like you said there's only so much you can get out of that and then at a certain point it's just like actively destroying the country that's the point we're at yeah and at least in the UK you sort of get this very stark example of like (laughs) You did it. Everybody's like, fuck you. And then it's like, <laughs> yeah, run away now. <laughs> I mean, newspaper literally the celebrate like this is great. Finally, a real Tory budget. I love that. I yeah. love that. The yeah, literally the next day, like the banks having a bail about pension funds collapsing, homeowners like, like mortgage rates spiking, just total insanity. The definition of an ideologue to me is like if you go with the thing that you say you want and you implement it like your ideal system and then everything immediately crumbles to shit. And you're still going to, like, not be willing to acknowledge, like, right. you don't even understand, bro. And, like, the long run, this would have been totally cool. Yeah. Like, just, everybody's overreacting. That is, like, the definition of an ideologue, you yeah. know? And I'm not saying they don't exist on the left, too. I mean, you could imagine some, like, revolution-type scenario where it's like, we're going to do this and this. And society falls apart. And they're like, you guys weren't even ready. That's on you, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you have to, whatever your ideology is, you could have that as, like, the ideal is one thing. And then you have to sort of work your way towards it in a sane, rational, responsible, reasonable way where you mitigate any of the potential downsides that come and they just she just didn't do that. I mean, this is what happens. She drank the Margaret Thatcher Kool-Aid. She wanted to be Margaret Thatcher 2.0 and it's like, you got your wish. You were Margaret Th- Thatcher 2.0 just like way less competent at it mm-hmm. and, and way too aggressive and then everything imploded. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really has been something to watch 
from the announcement of the mini budget to the economy and in free fall to the turmoil to the like, you know, wrath of the public to her resignation. So we're lucky to have Owen because, I, you know, I've been, I, we've been talking about that. Like, I've been fascinated by what's been happening there. So we booked him thinking, like, we'll figure out how this is all going to play out. And then on the very day we're set to interview Owen, she actually resigned. Trust so. is gone. Yeah, I, I, I was amazed. Perfectly. I will say I was amazed at because I'm, you know, when I look at looked at what the plan was, I was thinking this is like any conservative government anywhere in the world. This is what they do. Like, I'm not surprised by this at all. And this was the first time there was like instant, like, you know, a, a backlash, like instant, like, no. Yeah. And I, and I was like, whoa, the, like, I was actually surprised by that because usually it's boom bust cycles usually. But okay. I guess given yeah. the current economic scenario with high inflation and the war in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis, it just, it just couldn't work. It just wouldn't work. Definitely not. Yeah. So anyway. All right, guys. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody sign up on Substack for the show. Five dollars a month gets you the video of every show. It gets it to you um, a day early. And of course, you get the lovely newsletters as well. So shout out to Piper. And of course, shout out to the guys in the control room over here. They do a lot of great work for us. So Mm -hmm. thanks, guys. We appreciate that. And we'll talk to all you guys soon. Peace. Peace.